Last time I was here teaching in this class, I taught on Romans 14. And so I decided that I was going to uh, turn this into a little bit of a mini-series with a lot of time in between it. Um, when, I first, when I first started uh, preaching a few years ago, teaching and preaching a few years ago, I only got to do it like once a year or twice a year. And I thought maybe just start in Philippians and do a series, like no matter where I'm at, whatever church I'm in, whether it's Sunday school or a sermon, Sunday night, youth group, whatever, I'm just going to do my own version of a series. <clears throat> but I didn't know if I could uh, keep my attention span uh, going that long with one thing. But I am going to do that with this, even though most of you probably don't remember uh, what I taught on in September, because that's hard for me to even remember back that far. But in September, I asked the question about what Christians are supposed to do when they disagree. And we looked at Romans 14. So that may ring some vague bells for some of you. And the point of Romans 14 has a lot to do with accommodation and how we're, and how we're supposed to treat one another. Uh, we went over some principles <clears throat> about the fact that we need to accept one another because God has accepted us. We uh, were reminded that we need to recognize our mutual accountability before God when we disagree and the choices that we make. And we saw the fact that we need to have as one of the foremost goals in our mind the promotion of unity for the glory of God. Uh, unity is, is the goal. God has saved us and he's brought us together and he's, he's putting us in these local communities called churches and we are supposed to promote unity among one another for God's glory. So there are, are lots of different situations where when we have disagreements as Christians, these are the kinds of things that we're supposed to work for. However, on the other hand, there are situations that require a level of confrontation with one another. Now let me quickly say what I mean by that. Confrontation can have a, a level of con connotation that we don't mean here. I'm not talking about the attitude that we're supposed to take with one another, that we're supposed to be cantankerous with one another, that we're supposed to be in each other's faces or at each other's throats, or that this is constantly something that we're supposed to be doing, but the Bible does give us certain instances of where believers have disagreements and where the solution or the action that's to be taken in that disagreement isn't simply accommodation, but actually confrontation. And so I want to look at a couple of case studies that would help us maybe, hopefully, uh, gain some principles of what those kinds of situations are, where we're supposed to be a little bit more on the confrontational side versus the accommodation side. And honestly, when we, have, when we encounter situations like this, we have to do a little bit of theological triage. You know, you go to the, the triage room uh, area, an emergency room, and they decide, you know, what kind of situation is this? What needs to be done? We don't have a, a cookie-cutter um, approach to every kind of disagreement that we might have as believers. And so I think the Bible has given us, uh, as I'm pulling them out here, a few case studies that we can use and some principles that we can, that we can be looking for to know when we need to take a stand. 
So here's three different instances, and what we're going to do, I don't know how many we'll be able to get through, but we'll just go through whatever time we have, and I'll quit when, when you guys shut your Bibles three minutes before noon, <laughs> signaling that we're done. <laughs> I do the same thing, so uh, we'll, we'll get as far as we can. And the way that we're going to go about doing this <clears throat> is we are going to look in each one of these, uh, these scripture passages, we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at the issue that comes up. We're going to look at the effect that this disagreement has on the body. We're going to look at the core problem of what's going on there. And then finally, we're going to look at the response to that problem. So we're going to look at the issue, the effect, the problem, and then the response to the problem. And we're going to follow those four steps in each one of the scripture passages that we have time to handle. Galatians chapter 2, if you're already there, if you don't have a Bible, that's not a problem. Uh, I will read it aloud to you. But Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, records for us a disagreement that two of uh, probably what we would say the, the, the biggest leaders in the early church. You know, if you had to think of two people throughout the books, book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, two of the men that had the most leadership and had the most influence, they would have to be Peter and Paul, right? Galatians is, uh, is, is an epistle, which is a fancy and overcomplicated way of, of calling it a letter. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a church in a city called Galatia. And it records a disagreement that he had with Peter, the other major leader in the church. Here's what the Bible says in verse 11. I'll read verses 11 to 14. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. How's that for an opening sentence? Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. <clears throat> but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? It's a short passage. It actually ends there. It doesn't really go on further in the chapter to explore it anymore. It's just a, it's just a, a, a little snippet out of the letter that Paul wrote. But obviously we have a sharp disagreement. Let me define just a couple of terms for you to make sure we're on the same page. He's talking about, when he's talking about Gentiles here, he's talking about people who don't have a Jewish background. And specifically here, he's talking about people who have come to Christ who were never Jews in the first place. Early on at the birth of the church, we see that in Acts chapter 2, we see people who have a Jewish heritage, who become Christians. And that they have all of this Jewish background and these years and years and years and years of tradition and, and more than just tradition, but things that they're supposed to follow from the Mosaic Law. Then we have uh, the, the gospel is preached to the Gentiles as well. The Gentiles, again, anyone who doesn't come from a Jewish background and Gentiles are coming to Christ. No Jewish background at all. 
And now we have the problem of, of how these groups relate to one another and how they're supposed to fit together. And you can see very easily why tensions would arise. Because you have people with essentially no Judeo-Christian background at all now being together with this other group. And this other group is wondering, well, why aren't these Gentiles doing A, B, and C? So there were, there were all kinds of tensions that resulted in the history, uh, the early history of the church. And here's the issue that's brought up in Galatians chapter 2. The issue is Peter's relationship to the Gentile Christians. Peter's relationship to the, to the Gentile Christians. The specific issue is table fellowship. Table fellowship in that culture and among those people was something that carried a high level of significance to it. It's something that, as one writer put, people in our fast food culture can't understand. But it meant something significant to eat with someone in that culture, especially for the Jewish people. It was, very, it was highly significant to them. And we can see that throughout the Bible in the way the Jewish people behave. For instance, in the Old Testament, you see Daniel taking a, a, a big stand on who he's going to eat with and what he eats. He refuses to eat the meat that the, that, that the king provides for him. He opts to eat only vegetables. And it wasn't that as a Jew, he wasn't able to eat any, he, that there, were, uh, there, there weren't some sort of, of meats that he was able to eat. Obviously, the Jews were not able to eat pork and there were other dietary restrictions. But it, it wasn't everything, but he, he didn't eat any of it. And partially it was for these kinds of reasons. Then we have Jesus in Luke chapter 15, who absolutely scandalizes the Pharisees. Do you remember this? Their complaint with him is that this guy is eating with tax collectors and sinners. You can't, you can't do that. That is a huge no-no. Okay, table fellowship was very significant to them. And the table fellowship that the early church enjoyed was, in some ways, similar to the table fellowship that, that we enjoy here at our church on one of our ordinance Sundays. They would have uh, what they call a love feast, and at that love feast, they would they would eat together, and they would also celebrate the Lord's Lord's table together. That's why um, we have good reason. I think they, they might have been uh, they might have started to become Baptists because they always wanted to eat at everything that they did, and, and we're carrying along that tradition quite well. <laughs> um, but table fellowship was something that was very significant to them. It was something that Jesus scandalized the Pharisees. Uh, by turning those conventions on their heads. Peter had been enjoying this sort of table fellowship with Jewish converts to Christianity and Gentile converts to Christianity for some time. In fact, Peter was the person to whom God revealed that some of the dietary laws were being repealed because he had that vision and then he goes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius was not a Jew. Cornelius accepts Christ, and Peter goes and shares a meal with him. That got Peter in some hot water. And we, 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 we hear the, read the account of what happened in, in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. Chapter 11, um, He's called out, basically, by the church leaders by, and saying, hey, you know, what, what's going on here? Why, why are you eating with these people? And Peter simply responds this way. If God gave them the same gift as he gave us, and he's referring that gift is the Holy Spirit, 
Peter says, listen, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? So Peter is a, is a key figure in, in the turnaround from, 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 from saying, listen, when we have Gentile Christians who come to Christ and you Jewish Christians have come to Christ, you guys can eat together, you can share the meal together. This is something that pleases God. He wants us to have unity as a church. He's a key player in this. And yet, we read in Galatians that he withdraws fellowship from this very group because he gets pressure put on him from an outside source. Apparently, there is in verse 12, it says, Certain men who came from James. James was a pastor of, of a prominent congregation of believers in Jerusalem. Now, as you can imagine, Jerusalem, the weight you know, of, of members of the church in Jerusalem is going to be many more Jewish Christians than Gentile Christians. And so the influence uh, from Jerusalem is going to be that direction. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us whether James was okay with these people coming, whether he had sent them. Uh, we don't really know who these men from James were uh, and why, th- why they were there. All we know is that they're there and they're putting pressure on Peter. And so Peter actually starts to withdraw fellowship from these believers. He started being hypocritical, the text tells us. With one group, he acts a particular way. And with another group... He acts a particular way. And as we noted from Romans 14, that can be, it can be a, a loving thing to do to limit your behavior to, so as not to offend or not to hurt a Christian brother or sister. But in this case, his limiting of his contact with these Gentile Christians wasn't about their best interests. His limiting of his contact with them was because he wanted to please another group. So it's a completely different situation that we're dealing with here. He's being hypocritical. So, so that's the issue of what's going on. There's a table fellowship they, that they had been enjoying. A group comes down from Jerusalem that says, no, these people have to observe all the, all the Mosaic laws, dietary laws, Sabbath laws. They have to observe all that before we will have fellowship with them. And they put pressure on Peter, and Peter starts to back away. He starts to withdraw. What's the effect? Well, obviously... Peter separates himself from, from these people. And as you can imagine, this would be a very wounding thing to these believers. Here you have this, this leader who has, in effect, led the charge for the unity of these Christians. And now, all of a sudden, this other group comes in, and he's separating himself from them. That would be, that would be a very damaging thing. But not only that, the text tells us that he led others astray. The Jewish Christians, because following his lead, break off the fellowship of the Gentile Christians. And even another Christian leader, Barnabas, follows, takes his cue from Peter. And he starts breaking fellowship with these Christians. And that was a, that's a significant thing you know, Paul, that Paul says here in... Uh, <clears throat> Verse 12, I believe. No, verse 13. He says, even Barnabas is led astray. Barnabas was a very significant person in the life of Paul. If you'll remember, 
Barnabas is the one who introduced Paul when he went to Jerusalem. Paul, formerly Saul, has made it his goal in life to persecute the believers, to persecute Christians as hard as he can. Throwing them in jail, taking their possessions from them, uh, even, even martyring some of them. He has this conversion experience. And of course, the Christians think it's probably a trick. Barnabas is the one that sticks up for Paul and introduces him to the church leaders at Jerusalem and says, Paul is okay. His conversion is genuine. We need to follow his leadership. We need to accept him. And furthermore, Barnabas is one who accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. So Barnabas Barnabas is a very significant character to Paul, and yet, because of Peter's actions, based on this external pressure that's being put on him, Peter, Peter starts to break off. Other Jews start following him. Even Barnabas is led astray. So what's the problem here? We've seen the issue, the effect. What's, what's the basic problem? Well, first of all, and not as significant, but first of all, Peter's actions are hypocritical. Actually, the text uses the word hypocrisy. And that hypocrisy, the word, that word that is used there, is a, is a Greek word that had to do with putting on a mask playing a different role. And it, and it came to have connotations in their society as a person who was insincere or pretentious, a person who acted around certain groups of people contrary to what that person really thought to be true. And, and, and Paul, in no uncertain terms, applies that to Peter and says, you're being pretentious, you know better, this isn't an error, you aren't being led astray, it's just hypocrisy. It's just, to, it's just to, to try to maintain the standing and reputation that you want to have with this influential group. Peter's actions are hypocritical, but as bad as they were, his actions were more than mere hypocrisy. Peter's actions tore at the very fabric of the gospel. Peter's actions tore at the very fabric of the message of the gospel to withdraw fellowship from the Gentile Christians in that church clearly said something to them, sent a message to them about the insufficiency of their standing in Christ. It said the gospel is not enough for you to be accepted before God and accepted by us. And of course, as we've, as we've already noted, that's a tension that goes all the way through Acts. These people are saying you have to keep the Jewish customs and the Jewish law to be accepted by God. Peter falls, Peter falls to that. And the reason, the reason that Paul calls him out so strongly on that issue is because it touches on the gospel. And if there is one thing that we can't lose, it's the gospel. If there's one thing that we have to maintain the purity of, it's the gospel. If there's one thing that we've got to get right, that's it. And so it, doesn't, it didn't matter to Paul, leader, friend, good relationship, didn't matter. What was more important was the gospel. And so the response that Paul gives to him is a public rebuke. When I say public rebuke, I mean public rebuke. Like recorded in the Bible forever rebuke. It doesn't get any more public than that. 
than being called out by the Apostle Paul and having that letter read for generation after generation of Christians. But it's that important. The gospel is that important. And so, when we have disagreements with one another, the first thing that we have to remember is that we have to hold the line when a person alters, whether intentionally or unintentionally, when a person alters the gospel. There are times to be accommodating with different choices of, of conduct and behavior and belief. There are times to be accommodating. And in fact, we should be accommodating whenever we can. But it, when it comes to the gospel, we cannot accommodate. And we have to use discernment. And we have to see if this particular belief or this particular action is in line with the gospel. The text actually talks... In verse 14, Paul says, I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And he uses the word there that we get our, we get our word orthopedics from that, talking about walking in a straight line. Peter's, Peter's path, Peter's conduct, his actions were not in keeping with the message of the gospel. There is, a manner of, there is a manner of living, though you believe the gospel and have put your faith in the gospel, there is, it is possible to have a manner of living that is out of uh, not keeping in line with, straight with, the truth of the gospel. And so, we have him getting called out and publicly rebuked. If there's ever a time to drop the gloves, it's when the gospel is at stake. The gospel transcends all else. And we live in a time that seeks to minimize differences, right? We want to we harmonize. We don't... You've talked to people like I have. We don't... It, it's, it's uncomfortable when you disagree with someone. You know, when you're having conversations with somebody at a coffee shop or something and somebody says something, we don't, we don't like... We don't like confrontation. We don't like it to be different. We like to kind of agree. And in fact, we've all had conversations with people where we've tried to explain the gospel or tried to explain something about Christianity to them. And we know they don't agree with us at all, but they're nodding their head like, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And they don't agree at all because we don't like to disagree. It's uncomfortable. But sometimes for the sake of the gospel, we must. Now let's hit pause here. Let me ask you this, this question. <clears throat> by way of application. Is this just something that happens between two church leaders that this would never happen to us? There's no instances where, where this could happen. It doesn't really apply to us in any way. Can you think of any ways in which we would have to confront an altering of the gospel? And I'm not talking about on a church-wide level or something like that, but, but think, think for it a little bit. Anybody have any ideas of how that applies? Is that just something that happened back then? Yeah, that's true, but it doesn't really happen with me. I don't really need to think about that that much. Can you think of any instances? Any ideas? While I take a cup of, drink of coffee? Vince. Okay. Okay, good. 
Okay, that's a good example. And we, we, love, our, we love our Roman Catholic friends, um, but we have some, some disagreements um, with them about the nature of saving faith. Uh, we believe that the nature of saving faith is by grace through faith alone. And as Vince points out, there are other elements uh, in the Roman Catholic system of thought that are included in that, one of them being water baptism. Okay, so that's an important thing. We, we don't want, we, we have to, and it, again, confront is, is a strong word that has negative connotations. So try not to take the negative connotations. But we have to hold the line on the gospel. We have to hold the line with what the word of God says. And the word of God says that it is by grace through faith alone. Okay, good example. Anyone else? Zach? Okay, okay, there's another good example. You know, when preaching the gospel message, the, the gospel is, is great news. That's what the gospel means, good news. But the gospel also means there's bad news. And you have to understand the bad news before you can understand the good news. And the bad news is that we are all, because of our sin, condemned to eternal destruction. And the Bible does teach a level of of exclusivity to the Christian faith. One cannot remedy that problem unless they come to faith in Christ. Let me tell you what, that is not a popular position to take. And you can tell it's not a popular position to take by the preachers who get on talk shows and are just not quite able to say that. It's really hard because it's not a fun thing to say. It's a hard thing to say. And so, in some churches, it gets minimized. Well, that's not my job to decide. It's not my job to decide. You're right, it's not your job to decide. But what does the Bible say about it? Okay, Brian, did I see your hand up? Okay, there's, a, there's another example. There's, there are certain people, and, and I, don't know that we, I don't know that we have that a lot around, around, around our church, but I've grown up in places, and you obviously have heard of it too. There's people that are, are so stuck in a particular Bible translation that they believe that if you did not come to Christ uh, through that Bible translation, then you're not really saved. Okay, that's, that's certainly altering the gospel, isn't it? Okay. Good. So th- those are all good examples, and I'm, and I'm glad you're thinking with me, because we have the tendency to do is we have to see Peter, Paul, apostles, apostles don't exist anymore, major church leaders, that's something that was going on. Yeah, you can't alter the gospel, but that doesn't ever touch my life. It does touch our lives. And we have to be careful. I wrote down a couple of things here. I wrote down that it happens when we follow leaders rather than following the Bible. Is it a good thing to follow leadership? Absolutely. We should have a posture as Christians of being willing to follow leadership. That's absolutely a good thing. But one can follow leadership to a fault and follow the leader rather than following the leader as he follows the scriptures. And unfortunately, we have prominent leaders from time to time 
who make decisions to not walk in line with the gospel. But there are leaders, so, uh, okay, I'll give him that. That's not the posture that we're supposed to take. The, the, the leadership that we have at our church, and we have good godly leaders at our church, but Pastor Ken would be the first to tell you, don't follow me blindly. Follow me. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And I believe our leadership would say the same thing. We, we have the tendency to do that if we follow leaders rather than following the Bible. I think it can also happen, secondly, when we exclude others from fellowship based on things like economic standing, color, or spiritual pedigree. Now, that doesn't happen on any official level, probably, in our church. And it doesn't happen on any official level in other churches. But it happens. People aren't quite... They just don't quite get the standing we get. Oh, you, you, didn't, you weren't raised in a Christian home? You have, a, you have a life that's full of mistakes? You have a life where there are sin... There are consequences to sin that are still recurring in your past, even though you've repented, even though you've been forgiven. You've got all this stuff going on. Well, we'll accept you, but not quite the same way. (laughs) Because we don't have all those problems. Uh, You know, ethnicity and color are things that can divide. Martin Luther King said one time, the 11 o'clock hour was the most segregated hour of a week. He only said that 40 years ago. And in some ways it still can be. I understand there's all kinds of things. There's the area that you're in and what kind of diversity you have. But seriously, the gospel is something that is supposed to unite us. And anything that would, anything that would prevent us from the kind of unity, the kind of scriptural unity around truth that we're supposed to have, we should run from. We should confront. We should get it out. William Carey is a missionary to India. And he went to India, and in India, you know, they had the caste system. And, and that was a very difficult thing for, for them in that context of when a person comes to Christ, because the, caste, the, caste, the levels of the caste system aren't supposed to interact with one another. So a person would come to Christ, and there would still be that tension there. I'm from this caste, and you're from this caste. Uh, we can't be together. No, the gospel transcends all of that. And uh, so William Carey would refuse to baptize anyone who... who insisted on maintaining their caste distinctions. And one of, uh, of, of Carey's associates there in India, William Ward, was referring to one of Carey's first converts from Hinduism. His name was Krishna. Krishna was baptized and renounced caste distinctions, which is a suicidal almost thing to do in that culture, and, and particularly at that time. And William Ward, this uh, associate of Carey's, exclaimed, as one person put it, in words that breathe the spirit of the New Testament, thus the door of faith is open 
to the Gentiles. Who shall shut it? The chain of caste is broken. Who shall mend it? And this author goes on to say, Racism of any brand in any culture is incompatible with the truth of the gospel. Words that we need to hear. Words that we need to hear. So, first of all, and let me, let me close that off <clears throat> again with what Paul says later in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. He says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. That's what the gospel is supposed to do. So we need to be very careful. We need to hold the line when the error in question, the disagreement in question, tears at the fabric of the gospel. And so we have to use discernment and know whether that be the case. All right. As you can see, my time management is less than good. So we're going to skip. We're going to do, uh, we're going to do the last one. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We won't take the time to read all of 1 Corinthians 5, but let me just read a couple of verses from there to you so you can get a flavor for what's going on here. Verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. These people were very proud to have this person doing this particular activity in their assembly. And, and Paul, who wrote this letter as well, is saying, your, your pagan culture doesn't even do this, and you're proud of it. A man has his father's wife. What was probably going on there is, uh, is this person's father had been remarried. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the sinful nature so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Wow, more strong words, right? <laughs> Doesn't get too much stronger than that. But the issue here, obviously, is a person, a member of a congregation, who is involved in a blatant sexual sin. A sin that was not even tolerated, as the scriptures say, in the culture around them. That's the problem. The effect that it had was twofold. First of all, the effect of that unchecked sin was harm to the Christian community. Later on in the chapter... Paul talks about, he, he compares what they're allowing this sin, he compares it to leaven or yeast. If you put a little bit of yeast in bread, now I'm not a bread maker, so those of you who know what you're talking about, you're going to be like, okay, he has no idea what he's talking about. But Okay, so somehow you put yeast in bread, right? And it, there's, no way to, to, there's no way to separate out the yeast later. It has a tendency to go throughout the whole thing. It has a tendency to spread. And Paul compares unchecked sin to yeast in that same way. And, it, and, and he's, he's saying here, don't, don't be proud of your tolerance. Which is something that we actually are pretty proud of as a culture. 
Don't be proud of your tolerance. Rather, you need to get rid of it. Because it's like a sin is like a poison. It's like an infection. It starts in a wound. And it slowly spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads. And it affects the entire body. And the problem is, sin is this insidious evil that we often don't take seriously enough. It is, it is a destructive force that must be reckoned with. And Paul tells them in no uncertain terms, you need to put this person out from your assembly lest, the, lest unchecked sin, like yeast or like an infection, go through the whole body and completely destroy you. If you had an infection in your arm, would you, would you do anything about it? The Bible in Ephesians talks about the church, the group of people, as the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are a body functioning together and we cannot allow infection to run rampant because it will destroy us. There's harm to the Christian community and then there is, secondly, harm to the community's testimony. Look at These people are Christians, but look at, what they've, look at what's going on there. I'm going to give you some clarifications here so don't, don't get too worried. But they're, they're looking at them and saying, look at, look at the sin that is apparently they're okay with. That is, that is great harm to the church's testimony. So here's the problem. The problem is, according Christian standing to a person who is denying that standing by their conduct. We need to be confrontational in that sort of instance. When we have a person who is a professing Christian but refuses to repent of their sin over time. Now, and here's, where I, here's where I get to my disclaimers before you all get worried because we're all sinful people, right? And people around us in our community are going to look at us and they're going to see our, our sin problems. They're going to see that we struggle. And you know what? That's okay because we're sinful people. People have this idea that when people become Christians that if you slip up, well, you're a Christian, you're not supposed to slip up anymore. We never said we were perfect. We never said we were completely fixed. We've been shown grace. That's what makes us Christians, the fact that we've been shown grace. So we have our problems. We have our sin. And Paul even says here in this, in, in, uh, if I can, uh, he, he even says in verse 10, or verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In this case, you'd have to leave the world. So he's not saying, and don't worry, I'm not saying, hey, people got sin problems, you've got to stay away from them. What we're talking about here in this passage is people who want to maintain their standing, of, their standing in the Christian community, but who refuse to live in accordance with their profession of faith. When that happens, tolerance is not the response. When that happens, exclusion is the response. That's a difficult thing to do. Because that person might be your friend. Or someone you have history with. Or whatever. But the question then becomes, to whom is our ultimate allegiance? Is it to the people we have history with? Or is it to the word of God? What is our ultimate concern? A relationship with a friend? 
or the health of the church and our testimony before a watching world. We need to be very careful when it comes to allowing sin. And, and he, we, our, our time is, is gone. But what he says here is, is very revealing. You're handing this person over to Satan the way he puts it. Um, so the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The goal is restoration. The goal isn't, isn't, this person isn't keeping the rules, so let's be a jerk to him and maybe they'll change. The, pur- the purpose of their exclusion from the community is to show them the serious nature of their sin. If you continue unrepentant in this sin, you may be demonstrating that you are not really one of us. And the most loving thing that we can do is show you that you must repent. There is no other option. You must repent. You must have fellowship with God because if you continue in a posture of unrepentance and willful sin, and remember, I'm not talking about struggling with sin. I'm not talking about struggling with sin. We're all struggling with sin and we all sin over and over again, sometimes the same sin. I'm talking about unrepentant, willful sin. There are consequences for that that must be seen and understood. So, two things then. We'll close, we'll close. We've looked at Galatians 2. We need, we need to address it. When we have disagreements with, with believers, we need to address that person when a person is altering, even unintentionally, the gospel. And secondly, from 1 Corinthians 5, we need to address a situation where a person is a professing Christian, but willfully continuing in unrepentant sin. If I ever have a chance to do a uh, turn this into a trilogy, um, I'll give you the third part later. But let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we've been able to gather together this morning. I thank you for the church and what a marvelous idea that was. I thank you for the word that has been brought to us from Psalm 90. I pray that you would help us to remember that our time on earth here is short. I pray that you'd help us to make the most of every opportunity. Please bless each person in this room as they follow Jesus this week. Please help us to make choices and live in a way that is in line with the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.